Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I interview the CEO of Clothesline, which is one of the generator investment accelerator cohort companies. Dan's a great guy. He's got a really interesting background, former Marine helicopter pilot, started his first entrepreneurial endeavor at 12 as a paper route, just really informed a lot about who he is. And what a great company, Clothesline. It's basically like the Airbnb for wash and fold laundry. We have a really engaging conversation about the company, the origins, and just all of the different aspects of what it takes to grow and scale a company. So on with the podcast. Dan, welcome to the Growth Pioneers podcast. Good to have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, I've been excited to talk to you since we first met. I just really resonated with a company and what you're doing and excited to bring your entrepreneurial story and a little bit about your company to the listeners of uh, Reno, Nevada and the greater growth podcasts fan base, as it were. Yeah. So why don't you tell me a little bit about kind of your background? How did you become the CEO of Clothesline and kind of give me a little bit about your entrepreneurial experience? Yeah. So, you know, Clothesline, it's a peer-to-peer laundry marketplace. Essentially what we're doing is bringing New York City, San Francisco style laundry outsourcing to the masses, essentially democratizing it is what we're doing. Pretty interesting about the laundry industry. There's only about 18,000 laundromats in the United States. Uh, Only about 60% of them have wash and fold. And a third of them are in New York City, San Francisco, and Chicago. And so when you say laundry outsourcing to the vast majority of people in the United States, they don't know what you're talking about, right? You just do your laundry at home. And when they do think about laundry outsourcing, they think about laundromats, which is usually not accessible to most Americans because there are so few of them. And so what we're doing is taking the ease and convenience that people who live in big cities have and bringing it out to everybody. And and the way we're doing it is by empowering peers within a neighborhood or a town to provide a service for each other. And so moms with families who have more laundry than they can handle can outsource their laundry to another mom or a dad or somebody who has laun- who has laundry capabilities in their house. And that person will come pick up the clothes, wash it and fold it at their own house and bring it back. So it's almost like having a mom of your own that can help you with your laundry. And the journey to get there was kind of interesting. I've been doing laundry for a long time. As have I. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And so in my house, the way it worked was if you were the bad kid that week, you had to do everybody's laundry for the whole week. Ouch. Not my mom and dad's, but I had to do my brother and sister's. And so it was always a competition to see who was going to get to outsource their laundry and who was going to be the uh, service provider. Um, And so I learned the benefit of not having to do my own laundry when I was younger just by being a good kid. But the real story kind of revolves around my co-founder, Camden, bringing back this idea that at his university, some people who were friends of his would do other people's laundry for money, beer money or whatever kind of money. And as we were doing our research, it was amazing how many people said the same thing, that when they were in college, they would do laundry for extra money. And so we said, hey, I wonder if this is a thing that we could build, right? If this was, if there was traction here, if this was scalable. And as we started to look into it, we realized, yeah, it is scalable, but only certain people are doing it, right? Very tight-knit communities like college or very highly dense packed places like New York City are doing it. Like the rest of the 
country once you leave college or once you move out of Manhattan, you're just doing your own laundry, even though it's never ending, right? Yeah. I need this like yesterday, by the way. Like, I, I mean, I every time I walk down into our basement and I look at the laundry, it gives me anxiety. And, you know, I've got two kids and, you know, my wife and I both work and it, and we like to travel. And so it's just not one of those things that we like to do. And, and yet like the idea of going to a laundromat or it just doesn't, A, I can't even tell you where one is in Reno, honestly, let alone going and spending the time to go do that. I mean, I outsource like my business clothes, but not our other laundry. And I could just, I mean, it just seems like this is a no brainer. And I, I guess I just love the fact that, that this is like deeply embedded as you as a kid yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. come full circle. Like this is where ideas are created yeah. like in the, you know, in the challenging moments in your childhood. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and a lot of people have that same issue, right? I mean, I'll be honest, like before we started a clothesliner, we had the laundry chair, just like everybody else in their house, right? Yeah. The chair that your clothes just goes on, whether it's clean or dirty and maybe it gets folded, maybe it gets washed. You don't know. But next week, if it's there, you're probably going to put it on rather than going down and doing the laundry. And so, yeah. So, I mean, laundry takes up a huge amount of everybody's time. There's reports out there and studies that say it's about six hours of your life every week, not just like the physical portion of doing laundry, but the thinking about it, the picking it up bringing it downstairs or wherever your laundry is and then bringing it back upstairs and putting it away or trying to get your kids to put it away. I mean, it is a portion of your life that you're not getting back. Totally. I remember going to CES. It was probably, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, maybe even longer. And they were talking, they were demonstrating these robots that, you know, like to take care of the one last domestic chore that we have not been able to automate in any way, which is a laundry folding robot. And it was like $50,000 and took up like the size of a small garage. So yeah. it's, like, it's actually a complicated problem, yeah. you know, given all the different sizes. And, and yet here, you know, we haven't quite figured that one out yet, except for clothesline, which what brilliant way to do it. Outsource it. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's kind of like the Uber of, of, uh, laundry, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't like to call it the Uber laundry, right? We, um, so one of the big things that differentiates us from, other gig environments where you get to outsource kind of your chores or things is, is on our platform, the people who are doing the laundry, who we call clothesliners are super empowered to be their own entrepreneurs. And so they get a space on our platform to kind of tell their story, who they are, why they're doing this. A lot of times they'll talk about what they use the money for and, you know, you can build your own little business and then you have these repeat customers and it really becomes a relationship between the service provider, the clothesliner, and the customer. And we encourage that. We fully onboard everybody who's going to be a clothesliner. We support them to be the best laundry provider that they can be. We give them hints and techniques to be better because it's our belief that if you raise up the people that you work with, then everybody rises, yeah. right? A, a rising tide lifts all ships. And so we fully believe that. So I'm not sure Uber has that same model as us, but there are similar scenarios like care.com, right? You wouldn't just leave your kid to some random person, right? So care.com does a really good job of showing you who the babysitters are and how you can find out who they are and interview them and such so that when you do go out to dinner with your wife, you're sure that, you know, your child is in good hands. And we try to do the same thing with our clothesliners because, Laundry is super, super personal. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. a burden, but at the end of the day, it's dirty laundry. And like we've been telling ourselves, don't air your dirty laundry <laughs> for a hundred years, right? You have so many good marketing tips. I mean, there's so many different ways you could go with marketing with this company, but you're right. Like, I mean, I guess it is very, it's deeply personal, right? I mean, it's, it's not 
the same as getting into a car with somebody. I mean, that's, it has its own thing, but like, this is something that you engage with people over and over. And this is like your external view of the world. So I, yeah, I totally see it. It's very, it's very different. So I, yeah, thanks for differentiating that. And I, I would imagine, you know, like we have, we're very fortunate to have someone who helps clean our house and, you know, actually it started with her sister and now, you know, Maria works with us for, and, and her whole family has been involved with us for probably 15 years. And it's like, you know, we know their cousins and family. It's just, a, it's an intimate relationship. It's an extension of our family. Yeah. And that's the same thing that happens with our clothesliner. And really what separates us from other gig environments is, you know, Maria was your housekeeper at one point, And then probably only the very next time she was Maria. Right. And the very next time she comes, it's like Maria is coming. Right. Yeah. Because she becomes somebody that you trust and that you care about. And, you know, and she, probably feels the same way about you and your family. And we found that same relationship start to exist between our clothesliners and our customers. I mean, they exchange birthday cards, Christmas, you know, bonuses will start coming out this year. And not yeah. because there's any requirement, there's no pop-up on our app, like on Uber that says, oh, make sure you rating and leave a tip, right? It's just because you know who your clothesliner is. And in most cases, you know what their story is and you've chatted with them through the app. And so you want them to be successful because they're an extended part of your family support structure. And then they want you, you know, to have your clothes come back nicely because they know that you guys have this relationship. So it's, it's really an amazing process. And we did not, we intended to prop up our clothesliners. We did not anticipate the level of intimacy that was going to develop between our clothesliners and our customers. Yeah. Which is, I mean, you know, as you were talking, I'm thinking, this whole idea of us having to be in a family unit and doing everything ourselves is a pretty new concept, right? I mean, like it, we probably have a lot more time as humans in small tribes where everybody split the work. And so it's kind of like we, we went back to all of our own things and now it's kind of like much more distributed in a way. I, I, I like that better. I feel, at least living here in Reno, I feel like it's kind of a barn raising community. We all kind of help each other out, but there are a lot of people that you know, so it kind of takes a village, right? It, mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that go into helping us raise our kids and being part of it. This is just another extension of that. And you're really just lowering the barriers to finding the people that are qualified and care about that and want to do that. Yeah. And that you can help, you know, I mean, that's the flip side of it. As a customer, you are helping this other person with whatever their needs are, whatever reason why they feel like they want to be a part of the gig economy. They're there for a reason, right? They are trying to make a side income or, or make some kind of money for some kind of thing. And you're helping them achieve that goal. And it's, it's powerful when you feel like that. And when you know the person, right? It's not like Uber, right? Like the way people say, oh, I'm going to Uber home, right? We don't, ever, we don't ever anticipate people saying, oh, I'm going to clothesline this or that, right? Like they're mm -hmm. going to always be talking about their personal clothesliner and who they work with, mm -hmm. whatever that person's name is. And we're just, we're happy to be the conduit that bring those two people together. So are you going to promise no surge pricing ever? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I don't know how surge pricing works, so I don't anticipate it. But the way our system works is you match with your clothesliner. And so what we found in the past is simply they just communicate with each other. And uh, if somebody can't come at a particular time, then they just talk about it. And they're able to shift things around so that you can stay with the same people rather than and another thing is you can see the reason for 
uh, immediacy with an Uber car, but laundry, I mean, it's coming back the next day or two days later. So yeah, yeah. There's not quite the same. I, yeah. you know, I, I can't see it. Imagine, I'm sure we could come up with a scenario for surge pricing, but that's the one thing that's the most infuriating about, yeah. you know, Uber It's like, oh, my normal trip cost me $20. Oh, it's traffic or, or there, there's not a lot of people working now. It's a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it, it just, it, and it doesn't really go to the, as much to the drivers. It just doesn't yeah. feel, yeah, it feels, I like that. It's like, it's really addressing the psychological component behind buying. I mean, I, I can, yeah. it sounds like you're just, you're removing the friction to helping find, getting the needs met for your clothes. And it's like a beautiful marketplace problem, but that's a, it's a marketplace. So that's kind of complicated, yeah. right? You have to, you have to grow both like the clothes yeah. owners and the customers. Yeah. So tell me about kind of like what's going on in the business and how are you addressing these different Yeah. Challenges? So a two-sided marketplace is a thing, you know, it's yeah. a, it's a beast. The good thing is the gig economy has kind of been developed, right? People understand that the gig economy exists out there and that there are ways to monetize their underutilized assets. And so tapping into that from the service provider side is not as difficult as it probably would have been seven years ago, right? Um, now, when we go out to a new market, like we just opened Reno, we just opened Vegas uh, last month. When we go to a new market, generally we can just post for gig workers. Now, you know, people who are willing to do laundry in their spare time is a special beast, right? So we have to find the right people. We have to interview them. Every single um, clothesliner gets an actual phone interview. They do training. They do a sample uh, paid run so that we give them money to do a load of laundry. Sometimes we'll find a, a willing volunteer who volunteer their clothes to have it done for us. But, you know, they're conscientious people and they already understand the gig economy. And so that's great. On the other side, the customer side, that's a little more difficult because we're dealing with this very personal thing yeah. and because we're dealing with a mind shift, right? There's a there's a paradigm shift that we have to deal with. When you think of outsourcing your clothes, your laundry, you think of laundromats. It's almost like embedded mm. in our in our culture, right? And so now you have to find people who are willing to outsource their laundry outside of major cities, and then you have to convince them or at least let them know that this other option exists where you have a real individual and and they're trustworthy and they're honest and they're willing to come do your laundry. And then you have to put those two things together. So in every market that we go to, there's a bit of a learning curve, right? There's like the innovator and then there's like the whole customer journey across adoption. And so we're way over on the left in the innovator side right now. Yeah. Yeah. And who do you think your ideal customer is? I mean, like I had something similar to this was called my mother's in college. It was amazing. Like I could just jam something you know, like a trash bag filled and it would show up like magically shrink wrapped and folded, you know, two days later. It was amazing. But then it went away and I've always longed for this. But, <laughs> but you know, that was a college student. Who do you think your ideal customer is today? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a couple different customers that we market to and that we know find value in our service. The first ones are moms, right? Or, or generally it's moms. I think 80% of our customers are women. Most of them are the head of a family. It, it could just be a two-person family or it could be a family with, you know, children. But they're looking for help, right? They're looking for some way to offload some of the chores that they need to do throughout the week and find buy back some of the time that they're losing. So you said it earlier, we've become, you know, an envi- a, a culture that is is multitasked, right? We have a lot of things going on. And especially if you have kids, there's never-ending sports seasons, right? I mean, kids play sports the whole the whole season nowadays and then in the winter and in the summer. And 
if you have multiple kids, it's multiple days and then it's weekend long tournaments. So you're trying to buy back some of that time so you can be there and be present at that moment. And so that's a big portion of our customer base. Another portion of our customer base are young professionals who are working like crazy in their first or second job, right? They're trying to get in there. They're working 70, 80 hours a week. And when they get finished with that, the last thing they want to do is spend time in the laundry room, right? They want to go out and be with their friends and enjoy kind of the fruits of whatever labor they've been doing. So those are big number of our customers. And then the final range is older people, right? So we find a lot of older people who they might live in like um, an older community or something, and now they have to take their clothes. They don't have a washer and dryer in their in their unit. They might have to take it to a community unit space. And so we'll find children, like their children, who will hire like a subscription on their behalf so that their mom or dad doesn't have to carry a laundry bag down to the community washing machine and do their laundry, right? And then carry it back. And, you know, so it just gets picked up for them once a week and it's done, right? And now they can spend time with their grandkids and you also kind of remove any risk associated with that movement of the clothes back and forth to this community laundry machine. Yeah, that's, you know, honestly, I had not considered that last one. And my mom is, you know, she's not getting super old, but she's getting up there. And like, just the idea of like, she was managing one of her rental properties. And I was like, why don't you just get a property manager just Mm -hmm. to take the stress off? Right. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a place as she's getting older where I totally understand. It's like, Hey, look, let's de-risk or, you know, declutter your life so you can really enjoy these. I hadn't considered that. That's actually a really interesting segment of your market. I hadn't considered it. Gosh, what a big, what a big market too. All the boomers retiring and all of that. That's yeah. It's great. And it's one of those markets where you have like a natural flywheel effect, right? If you get one or two, you know, people who are in one of these little communities, they start talking about it. And then next thing you know, you have three or four or five of, of, you know, the people who live in that community all kind of getting together. I mean, someday we're going to reach out to the college student, you know, population like you had. And when you anticipate the same kind of thing, right, they talk, you know, they talk to each other. And if you provide a good service and it's fair, and it's priced right, then, you know, you can have natural traction in communities like that. I bet you can. Although I got to imagine you're implicitly, you know, competing against bar money, which is a little harder in the, in the college world. (laughs) So in the college world, we tried it once, but what we realized, like after about three or four months is that everything in the college campus is done in beer math, right? (laughs) So it's $20 for a bag of laundry, but that's four beers. And so I don't know, I can just turn my clothes inside out and still go to class, but I'm never going to get those four beers back. Right. So (laughs) what we need to do is actually get to the moms and dads of the college students and, you know, have them buy a subscription for their kids so that they can uh, have clean clothes. But that's funny. So where do people go to sign up for Clothesline? Just it's www.clothesline.com with a Y, right? So yeah. L-Y-N-E. So, you know, it's a standard clothesline, but with an L-Y-N-E.com. And then from there, you can follow the links to download the app. And, you know, once you're inside the app, it's pretty simple. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll put, I'll make sure and put the the full URL in the show notes. So, you know, tell me a little bit about how did you get here? I mean, is this your first entrepreneurial endeavor or is, you know, tell me a little bit about your backstory? Yeah. So it's definitely not my first entrepreneur. <laughs> I think um, that started when I was about 12 years old. And the way it worked in my family is 
after you got to the age where you could work, then you needed to work. Which was what age? 12. 12. Okay. So when I was 12 years old, I mean, I'm almost 50 now, so that was a long time ago. I don't think the 12-year-olds are still allowed to work. My 12-year-old is is avoiding that with the plague. Like He is successfully avoiding all work at the moment. Yeah. So, I mean, we had to have a special, you had to go to City Hall to get a special work license for below 13 or something, but I had a paper route at the, at 12 years old. And so I got this special permit to have this paper route. And, um, and I did that paper route every day from when I was 12 until when I was 18 years old. And I grew up in New York. And so I got to tell stories about uphill and the snow both ways, but it was uphill in the <laughs> snow both ways. I'm not joking to you. I mean, it is New York in the winter and our local newspaper did not miss a day. I mean, It would be a snow day out there, right? You know, I'd be waking up five o'clock in the morning, two feet of snow out there on the radio because it's back in the old days. On the radio, they're talking about which schools are closed for the day. And I look out that window and the dang papers would be out there ready to go. (laughs) And I'd be like, how is this possible, man? (laughs) So, but yeah, I did it. And, um, you know, and it was actually, it was a necessity because um, once you were allowed to have a job in our family, then you had to start helping out with the family. So when I was 12 years old, I had to start buying my own school clothes. If I wanted to play sports, I had to buy my own sports equipment, pay for my own sports league. So it was one of those things that was born out of necessity, like yeah. most entrepreneurs are. Sure. And it actually was amazing, right? Because every morning I had a new problem I had to figure out, right? I had to get the newspapers out. It was the same problem, but the weather or the time or the time of year all presented new little things that I had to solve. Sure. And every day I had to solve them by myself and try to figure it out. And you just get really good at solving problems. And then once you get good at solving problems, it's hard to turn that off, right? And then you're really only natural progression is to entrepreneurship and or to flying helicopters in the Marine Corps, which I also did. Wow. Wow. I appreciate your service. Thank you for, where did you serve? Yeah. So I flew helicopters in the Marine Corps for 10 years. I did two tours in Afghanistan, a tour in Iraq. Basically, I think I'm like the modern day Forrest Gump, right? So from like (laughs) 2000 until 2000 until this very day i always seem to find myself in like random places where random things are happening right and so i joined the marine corps i felt like i had a need to serve my country i really believed that i had a duty to pay back something to my country for all that my family was able to achieve but i didn't know that like 9-11 was going to happen and i was getting ready to deploy on a boat in january of 2002 and then 9-11 happened. And so in December of 2001, we were on our way, like wow. over towards Somalia and then from Somalia to Afghanistan. So I was in Afghanistan within six months of 9-11 happening. Oh, wow. And then we came back from that. And like maybe three months later, I was on an airplane with my helicopter to Kuwait. And I was like one of the first helicopters to go into Iraq on the day that we invaded Iraq. It's like, wow. you know, you, uh, it's just it, all these coincidence things just kind of happen. But that, that being a part of the, the Marine Corps, being a part of the military is also extremely entrepreneurial. I mean, sure. people don't understand it because they're like, oh, it's rigid and there's a lot of discipline. But within that discipline is a an enormous push to solve problems on the battlefield in real time at every single level of leadership. So even a rifleman in the Marine Corps, 
needs to be able to solve the problems that are specific to his role. Yeah. And I was a major and a helicopter pilot, but within that helicopter, me and my team needed to solve the problems that were specific to our mission on that particular day. And so, and that changes every single time. Oh, every yeah. time you take off, it's a different, you know what the mission is, but how you get there, how you deliver it and how you get home changes like within minutes. And so all of that is entrepreneurial, you know, all of that is shaping my mind for when I finally became an entrepreneur and dealing with the different things that come along with that. Yeah. I, you know, and there's something about that. Our CEO went to West Point and he was a Colonel and it's been amazing to learn under his leadership. And, you know, I just didn't come from a military family. My brother was in the army, but I just, over time, and I, now I actually have a lot of friends that are in all the branches of the service. And it's just, I have such a respect for what you've learned, the, obviously the commitment to the country, but I, I just didn't really connect with how much we actually learn by going through the experience. I mean, you know, I have some friends that have been pretty beat up too. I mean, it's it's not all you know yeah. uh, unicorns and rainbows, but just really appreciate hearing that perspective. I think just getting into a helicopter is a feat of you know, it's amazing that things can even fly. I've, yeah. only, I've only been heli. I went heli skiing twice, two best days of my life actually, or one of them. Not you know. In that realm, like kids and yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But just amazing. I mean, you're in this scene. You're like, no way, this thing is yeah, airborne. Yeah. What what kind of helicopter did you? Fly? I flew a 53, so it's actually the biggest helicopter that the United States has. And when we act, when we decided to actually get into 20 straight years of of war, uh, it was a Marine Corps asset, but it quickly became a national asset because it, it's the biggest helicopter. It can carry the most. It can go the furthest. And it has this huge dynamic mission profile. Yeah. And so the second time I went to Afghanistan, I was actually attached to an army unit who needed the kind of capacity mm -hmm. that our helicopter could provide. But but yeah, helicopters are bonkers, man. <laughs> There's over a million moving pieces on a 53 to make that thing fly in the air. And all of them needed to relatively work, right? Yeah. Like not all of them needed to work perfect, but they needed to be like 80% to get up off the ground and then to carry 15,000 pounds of cargo. Wow. But it was unbelievably rewarding. So I was in Afghanistan for Christmas time in 2004. And so you have all these Marines and, and soldiers and Navy SEALs and people deployed throughout Afghanistan and Christmas is coming on and our helicopter was tasked with basically being Santa for the whole month of December. And so all we did was load up every single day with gifts that people were sending from home. Yeah. We would load our helicopter until it was filled wow. and then we would take it out to some random space in the middle of nowhere and offload it for you know, Marines and they'd be getting presents from their mom or dad or their wow. kids. And it was unbelievable. Oh, special. so meaningful. I can only imagine, you know, one of the things I don't know you very well, Dan, but you know, I've had a chance to talk to you a little bit. I can just tell you're just such a value centered person like this, like that kind of these core values and these experiences you had really drive you. And I just think it's one of those things I really appreciate about entrepreneurs and particularly about you. I can just tell you're like very aligned around your values. I would imagine that shows up in how you lead the company and how you work. It, it's I just, I, I think it's really remarkable. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And it, it really is one of those things that I try to make sure that show in what we're doing and why we're doing it. And because it's one of those things that will last forever with people like superficial things don't, but if you can change somebody's life, if you can bring a Christmas present or, you know, if you can do something that helps a family, then they're going to remember that and you're going to remember it. 
And that's pretty special. Yeah, that's amazing. And so you left the Marine Corps. Did you go right in? Did you have anything between? Marine no, Corps? no. So I, I left the Marine Corps and <laughs> had about $14,000 in my bank, which I thought was a, a huge amount of money coming out of the Marine Corps, right? Um, and I was heading down to South America, man. I was going to be Che Guevara. I had just read the motorcycle diaries and I was like, I'm going down there and I'm going to ride a motorcycle in Argentina until I run out of money. But then I got swooped up by a major oil company by uh, Shell Oil. And they offered me this really awesome opportunity to be in charge of all of their aviation operations in the Gulf of Mexico and eventually the entire United States. And so I took that job and then it led me on this amazing journey, right? So I lived in New Orleans for like four and a half years. It goes back to that Forrest Gump things like this right after Katrina, right? I'm moving to New Orleans when like half the city is still decimated and I'm going there and there's only one oil company left in New Orleans after Katrina and it was Shell and So I was there while the city was like picking itself back up and it was beautiful to watch. But then I spent three years in the Netherlands. My daughter was born in the Netherlands. Uh So we had like a baby in Europe, which was totally different. So at the same time, one of our cousins was having a baby in the United States. So like my wife and her could like see the difference in how you, and then after we spent about three years in Europe where I was responsible for operations in Russia, Nigeria, Italy, all over, I would spend a lot of time traveling. We eventually went to uh, Malaysia where I was responsible for aviation operations and logistics operations for Southeast Asia. And, and that's where my son was born. So I had like a son born in, in the Netherlands, which is like the most efficient, effective nation in the world. I have no problem <laughs> saying that. They are the they are unbelievable people. And then we go to Malaysia, totally different, yeah, right? Like, <laughs> so, yeah, but true. I mean, it was just amazing. And so like now, like I have a daughter who is born in Europe and a son who's born in Malaysia and, you know, and now we move back to the United States. And I, when I left Shell is when I finally became an entrepreneur. Yeah. What an but all those things just in, you know, it's just great experience and fodder for when you got into the world. I mean, it's just, I think it's, I think there's great that we see young entrepreneurs that don't have a lot of experience and there's a lot of innovation that comes out of tech, but it's also something about having, there's no substitute for just experience and wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with that. And I mean, my co-founder Camden, God bless him, is a 23 year old. And so, you know, he's head first into that portion of the entrepreneur side, right? This, you read about it in blogs and you hear all these podcasts about it. And then there's me like the old man, right? 47, eight years old. Hey, I'm 48. I'm not that old. I don't feel that old. Come on now. (laughs) But in the startup world, we are, right? And so, but that experience and also, you know, it goes back to kind of that core beliefs. Like when you live in New Orleans and it's rebuilding itself Mm. and you see the culture of what that looks like, and then you move to the Netherlands and You have to live with the Dutch people who are very efficient and effective and beautiful people on their own in like a very aesthetic way. And then you move to Malaysia and they're just the nicest, kindest. To this day, I have never worked with a better team than I had in Malaysia from purely just good at what they did and caring about each other, both professionally and personally. Um, You you take all that stuff in, right? You It becomes a part of who you are as a person. And then that's who you become when you start a company. And so that's what I try to do with all these different things is make sure that I can see things from different perspectives because I've lived in all these different places with all these different perspectives. Well, that's good. You're going to need it, right? The journey yeah. of a growth, high growth entrepreneur is one of constant change and problem solving and, you know, lots of 
lots of challenges. So what are some of the challenges you guys face currently? Like, well, where are you guys at as a company? Yeah. So I think our biggest challenge right now is figuring out how we're going to scale the company effectively throughout the United States. And, and then what are all the things that are involved in that? Right. So we're always fundraising, which means that you know, you hear the word no a lot or you hear no answer at all, yeah. which is worse. worse yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, you know, there's always that, right? So um, trying to prove yourself over and over and over again, maybe in as little as five minutes. And then once you prove to somebody enough for them to take another meeting is to then show them, you know, how passionate you are about the program. So we're, we're working on that all the time, trying yeah. to figure out. There's always tech issues, of course. If you have a tech thing, then there's constantly a bug that needs to be fixed. So we're constantly working on that. One of the big things we're working on right now is messaging, right? So I already talked about how our customers are mostly women, 80% women. Yeah. And then now you know it's me and Camden who are the <laughs> founders. And so we both fully respect the fact that our messaging probably isn't as on point as it could be if yep. we had some professionals on board. But we're working on it, right? I mean, the one thing that you have to be when you're a founder is humble, right? Yeah. And able to say, okay, yeah, we're not good at that. And we need somebody to come help us with that. And so. Yeah. What, what are they, this, what's the joke? Every startup needs a hacker, a hipster and a hustler. So like, you're probably the hustler and Camden's probably the hacker. So you need a hipster. Yeah. You yeah need a messaging exactly. hipster. Probably sounds like a female hipster. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That would be ideal for sure. I think the next team member definitely needs to be female. Yeah. That, so, and you, you came to Reno, so you're based in New York, but you came to Reno by way of the generator, uh, technology accelerator. What have you been, you know, getting out of that programming? Like, why did you choose to, to go to the generator and, you know, what, how's that been working for you? Yeah. So, I mean, we were super blessed to be part of the generator program. I, I mean, I can't, I can't stress it enough, right? We're 11 months old. We're growing. We have a great model. We have a, a good set of ethics. And Generator recognized that. And so we're lucky to actually get into the Generator program. But what we've gotten the most out of it is unbelievable access to people that we never would have been able to meet. So we're from a small town in New York. It's about an hour north of New York City. So technically, we should be able to tap into the New York City environment. But we built this thing during COVID. Mm. So you couldn't go to the city. You couldn't meet anybody. You couldn't network. And the startup business and the East Coast is way different than the startup business on the West Coast, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to access to people who are just willing to give you their time, yeah. right? Over here on the West Coast, you have so many people who have been involved in the startup world. They're, they're falling over themselves to share their opportunities with you and really tell you, you know, like areas where you might fall down or areas where you can be better. And what we found in Reno specifically, it's just like the most generous people, unbelievably mm -hmm. generous with their time, not just to come meet us at the generator where we have like mentor swarms, but also afterwards, like I've had beers with so many people, people like people work at Airbnb, people like head of global growth for Uber, like people that I would never have had access to. And they were so generous with their time and they continue to be, if I send them an email, generally they'll respond back within a day, you know, with some kind of nugget of information that's helpful. And so it's, it's been unbelievable. That's awesome. I mean, it makes me so happy as an economic developer and, you know, obviously you've been trying to build the startup community or help support the growth of the startup community here for 10 years. The fact that 
A, you know, people are generous, which I see is true for our community, but to hear that from you specifically, but then also the caliber of people, like that's right. always been a bit of a challenge as we're trying to grow this ecosystem is can we have the level of sophistication? And, you know, of course, everybody talks about they want to be the next Silicon Valley. Like, I don't want to be the next Silicon Valley. I want to be the best version of Reno, but that involves amazing people with that ethic, right? I, I in my former medical device company, we tried to raise a bunch of money in New York and I just couldn't, it was so different than California. I had to pay, I had, I felt like I was handing out $5,000 checks everywhere just to get intros to things. And it just, it's just a very different animal. And I yeah. love New York. It's a great place, but there's very, it's a very different ethic on the West coast for sure. And, you know, I think I'm glad that your experience in Reno has been positive. I mean, I, I think very highly of the generator, Jared, the managing director is a great friend of mine. So yeah. Really excited, but it, but you know, you it was a risk. I mean, you came all the way from New York to Reno. I mean, yeah. like I don't know what what was your impression of Reno yeah. before you came here? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I'll be honest. There were about three other programs in the generator system that were available at the time when we were applying, and Reno was our second choice. But it could not have been better. I I, I don't know how they did on the other generator cohorts, the but the one that we had here. It was amazing. And then the city, right? I mean, you have, you guys, I can't even imagine that it never looked like this. Like, I can't imagine that it never had bike lanes or that it never had families doing, dressed up like Alice in Wonderland doing scavenger hunts all every Saturday. Or like, I just, because everything just seems so natural, everything yeah. just seems like it was always this amazing little pedestrian fine arts almost type of environment that I, I can't imagine where you have all these different demographics of people kind of living harmoniously. You know, I mean, even people who seem like they're maybe a little down on their luck, the, the other people in Reno, they're generous to those people. They're yeah. conscientious of everybody. I, I mean, one of the things that strikes me the most that I think is like the most telling about people in Reno is that if you are walking in the crosswalk, they will stop their car no matter what. It is incredible. And they will wait there patiently for you to cross the street. Nobody honks their horn. Nobody tries to like sneak by as soon as you're a foot outside of their range of their car. Right? It is this almost like this familial yeah. respect for each other that you guys have gotten here. And it's amazing. And, you know, you meet old timers like, oh, the place has changed a lot. But you can't, they can't deny that it hasn't changed for the better. I mean, it is beautiful and it's, and what you guys have created here is really amazing. We love it. That's great. I really, I'm happy to hear that. I mean, there were so many, you know, 10 years ago, we didn't have the bike lanes and it was a little dodgy downtown. <laughs> it's a little dodgy downtown, but you know, I actually think it's good to have a little bit of grit too, yeah. right? Like it's got that personality to it. I mean, you and I were talking and you said you, you're kind of a connoisseur of dive bars, and so yeah. you, which is unique. You, what's your favorite bar in Reno? Yeah. I mean, well, we have two favorite bars. We have a favorite dive bar, which is Shooters. Oh my I gosh. mean, such a, it, such a, such a classic dirty dive bar. Oh my God. It is awesome. I mean, not this past Saturday, but the Saturday before Camden and I just went there and we drank like $2 beers, Pabst Blue Ribbon. And we sat at the bar and we just kind of watched the world go by. And yeah. it was awesome, right? <laughs> the people that came in and sat next to us, the bartender, the lady who owned the place was there. You know, it was amazing. And then our second favorite place to go to is the hideout bar, which is 
right over by oh it's on keystone isn't it yeah it's on wells or like right off of wells i don't know the name of the street but and that again is a neighborhood bar right it's just in the middle of a neighborhood if you didn't if you didn't live in that neighborhood or like i ride my bike everywhere if you didn't ride your bike by it you wouldn't probably know it was there but once you know it's there they know you you know them i mean and and again it kind of like personifies Reno and the fact that you have all these different people in there. The bartender knows who you are. You know who he is. You go in there, you watch your favorite sports game, probably somebody there who doesn't like your team, but it doesn't matter. Uh, so we've, we've learned to really love this place and we live downtown. So, you know, and I walk everywhere. I don't even have a car. I have a bike and we walk and I wouldn't say it was too edgy. I mean, yeah, it's, no, it's not. I mean, it's, I would kind of remind it was, I lived in the mission district in San Francisco. It's kind of the closest, although now, gosh, I was just in Oakland last week and we went to this meeting and they parked their car at the Starbucks, walked into Starbucks and somebody smashed and grabbed all their computers. Oh my God. And it's just gone to hell over there right now. I mean, they'll, they'll figure it out, but Back in the day, I kind of remind, Reno kind of felt like the Mission District. It was like neighborhoody, cool, a little edgy, but but yeah, it's changed a lot. And I think that what's amazing is you know people from the outside that come from big cities that have this you know cultural expectation can come in here and not only in, you know find their way, but also enjoy it and see kind of the richness of the community. That really just makes me happy. I think that yeah. that's my experience here. When I first came here, I was like. I'm either crazy to be here or I have a secret. And yeah. it took a while for the rest of the world to recognize that a secret, but it, yeah. it's really come together. So I'm I'm really happy that even though we were your second choice, it actually worked out much better for you. Yeah, no, it was it was beautiful. And, you know, we're super happy to be here. You know, we, we love it here. Yeah. So what's next for Clothesline? Where do you, what's next on your trajectory here? Yeah. So we're going to be finishing with the program here on December 2nd and then it's back to New York. We finished, just closed up our pre-seed fund rounding. Congratulations. Yeah, so that's great. So we'll be taking that money back. We'll be deploying it. Our intention is to grow all up and down the East Coast. So basically from Boston down to Washington, D.C. And then over here, we're in Nevada. So we're going to expand down south towards Arizona and the major metropolitan areas down there. You know, and then after that, we're going to kind of see what happens, right? Um, yeah. You know, I mean, the idea is to be a national laundry service for everybody, right? Democratized laundry. And so, you know, the sky's the limit, really, because nobody's ever going to not be doing laundry. Yeah. that Unless we all live in the metaverse, yeah. which I don't think is going to, I mean, yeah. I could be wrong. It's probably dangerous to bet against Zuckerberg on this one, but I just don't get that one. And I, you know, maybe I'm too old. I'm fairly sure people are going to have to wash their clothes in the metaverse. It's a it's a it's a forty billion dollar industry. It's not going to get cut out of the metaverse. But if you could just put on your headset and push a button, and you can be a unicorn, I guess you can do whatever. I guess yeah. at some maybe you have to maybe you have to just wash the metaverse suit that you'll wear. Yeah. If you're full, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Now we're getting into dystopic techno, you know, futurism. But yeah, I'm excited for you. Congratulations on the round. I'm really so happy that you've been able to explore Reno. It's just a real pleasure to get to know you. And where can people go? Clothesline. So you spelled out for me. It's Yeah, it's Clothesline, C-L-O-T-H-E-S-L-Y-N-E, right? Clothesline.com. Perfect. So, That's uh, all. Yeah, go download the app and, um, you know, let us know what you think. Thanks, Dan. It's a real great pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for coming to Reno. Thank you for your service. Actually, I have one last question for you. Are you going to make your 12-year-old get their own paper route? Yeah. So, I mean, lucky for my daughter who is eight now, they're not allowed to do paper routes in the, you're not allowed to have a paper route as a kid anymore in New York. So 
but she's going to have a job. She already has a job, right? So whether or not she's making actual income, we'll have to see how we manage that. But there will be work involved sure. in her future. Well, good luck to her. Good luck to you. Take care. Thanks. Thanks.